Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. If this is what I have to go through to write a book, I don't ever want to write another book again in my life. Good morning, Renee. Good morning, Caitlin. We are launching our, what is this, fourth season of this podcast on a very special day. It is your 50th birthday. All right. I mean, you didn't need to put the number on the like start did you i mean you could have just said it was my birthday but it is your 40th birthday it's my 40th i remember when i turned 40 i thought i was old then so i guess i just have to embrace it half a century i made it um and i'm surrounded by great loving fun friends you and i had a great trip on a boat the other day paid paid and taken care of by my very good friend Deidre. so i've got some very good friends in the world and so yes, we are recording this and getting it out on my birthday. And what a amazing first episode we have for the season because you spoke to James Blake, a legend in and around the sport, obviously a player, a Davis Cup champion, a Harvard graduate, and a commentator. But most notably and most timely, he is the tournament director for the currently underway Miami Open. That's right. Yeah, I spoke to James back um, actually during the Australian Open and, uh, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty about Miami and where it was going to happen. It was going to be in Miami. They were talking about putting it at Abu Dhabi. So he's, you know, obviously had to go through a lot over the last few months. He's also gone, gone through a lot in his life in general. We get into that quite substantially about different things from his father to his illness um, to his own issues to police brutality. I mean, you name it, James has sort of been um through a lot in his uh, career and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in your whole entire life i think my favorite part of this episode is you kind of gently call him out for being uh well you use the word dick but a a bit of a prickly personality at times for tournament directors and mm-hmm. now finding himself a tournament director a much more sympathetic and sort of nuanced position on the sport that's a real evolution well, I mean, listen, it takes one to know one, right? So um, <laughs> I know exactly what I used to be like with certain tournament directors and certain scheduling and various different things. But it's nice um, that he now can sit back. It's the same with coaching now that I coach. You know, I was, wasn't easy on my coaches. So I think, you know, now that I'm 50, Caitlin, mm-hmm. um, you start to recognize some of the things that the immaturity brought out in you as a, as a younger player. And, you know, tennis players are pretty selfish. Um, the world, you know, revolves around them. So it's interesting for him because he now in his position can be so much more 
3D and, 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 and available to players to be able to say to them, look, I know, but the big picture is X and Y. So it's, it's good. And he's, yeah, he talks about it a lot. Well, I absolutely love that this is happening during the Miami Open, which, as you noted, um, was sort of fraught for a time, unclear about where, whether or not it would be held, how it would be held, what kind of bubble, what kind of fans. Um, so far, the tournament is underway, you know, seemingly without a hitch. And I really, really, really admire, um, especially players who turn around and, and find themselves in positions of leadership and really embrace the things that both concerned them and they wanted to advocate for when they were players on behalf of players, but also have a bigger understanding of the volunteers, the umpires, the staff, the physios, all the stuff that makes this world work. And I was really, um, you know, moved by how much that means to him and, and seeing how, you know, seriously he takes that. And, you know, so far he's put on a great tournament uh, this year, but also since he's taken it over. So, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased we had James on the show. Nice job. Yeah, uh, me too. And as I said, not only I get to work with him now at ESPN, um, you know, not, not a lot, but when I do, he's just the, he's just a generous, um, kind, uh, he's just a good guy. He's a, as we say in Australia, he's a good bloke. Good bloke. All right. Well, with no further ado, here's our first episode of the season. I hope you enjoy James Blake. And again, happy birthday, Renee. Excited to get people your voice in their ears. Welcome back, everybody. Well, first of all, I want to welcome uh, James Blake to the Racket Magazine podcast. James, you and I have been talking about doing this for a while, since the, at least the US Open last year. So thanks for joining me. At least. Happy to be here. Sorry it's taken so long. No, no, I'm, I'm glad. We, uh, you know, we save our best for the third season. So here you are. Um, exactly. You got to have some build up, you know, the opening act. That's right. That's right. You know, people, we've got to give the people what they want and they've been wanting you for a while. So I'm glad that you're here. I find um, that actually, very hard to believe, but I like, I like the, uh, I like that though. I like, I like pretending <laughs> that's true. My, my favorite thing is that you are getting on this before Marty Fish, who's also said that he's going to do the pod, but he, of course, you know, he's too busy going out and winning golf tournaments. He's too important for everybody now. Exactly. Way too important. But I mean, I told him last week that it's, you know, it's just the same old headline as, as a Blake carries fish to victory because, you know, he had my brother on the on the bag there. He was the caddy. So, I mean, it's just the same old story. It's just, you know, he's got to rely on a Blake. I love that. And I'm going to bring that up when I do talk to him. Um, <laughs> so way to go, way to go, way to go on that one. Um, I, I, I always start the pod by asking people how they got into tennis and um I kind of know your story, but I'd like you to tell yeah. everyone what and why you got into tennis. Well, that was, uh, it's always been another joke in my household is that it was because my parents were too cheap to pay for a babysitter. And um, they both played and they played for fun. They actually kind of met on a tennis court uh, when my dad was sort of getting better and learning. He learned in the service and my mom had played all her life. So she was pretty good around the the public courts. And so they got to playing together and my mom helped my dad and, then they um, they just took a liking to each other, and a little bit little bit later, my brother and I showed up. So you know, it was, they uh, and it was what they did together. It's what they always liked doing. So our kind of routine on a weekend, if we if we had time together as a family, we would go out and play tennis. And um, whether it was my dad hitting with my mom and me hitting with my brother, or me hitting with my dad and my, my or me hitting with my mom, we would just kind of mix and match, and we just all got to playing together. And, and um, that was what we, my brother and I loved. I wanted to be like him. He was better at it from a young age. So I wanted to be like him. And um, then as we got a little older, a little older, we played every sport. My brother and I were both pretty, um, pretty athletic and just do, trying to do anything and everything. And eventually my dad sort of sat us down and said, Hey, I'd rather you guys 
pick one thing and try to be good at one thing. He didn't care what it was. Um, just said, pick something. And, and I'd like you to put your focus to that. And both of us on our own pick tennis. And just because we had played it for so long and we, we both loved it. I loved the, the individual aspect of it. I love the fact you go out and um, you win or you lose and you got no one to blame, but yourself, if you lose and, and you, you know, what hard work you put in and you're not going to go out and, and blame anyone else. I, I like that. So I'm always fascinated because at some stage, uh, a lot of, obviously a lot of tennis players, a lot of athletes, they are good athletes in other sports, you know, like me, I swam competitively and I had all these like choices and I had an older brother that I always wanted to be sort of around and with. I'm always fascinated, like what other sports would, if you didn't have, if you hadn't picked tennis, what, what other sports would have driven you um, to be as competitive as you were as a tennis player? Well, I've, I've thought about that plenty of times, especially as I see the contracts going crazier and crazier in baseball <laughs> is because that's a sport I, I probably last dropped off from uh, uh, because I loved baseball. Um, I, liked, um, I liked that team atmosphere. Um, and probably one of the best things that happened to my tennis career is that I had a terrible team uh, when I was about 13 years old. And I got so frustrated with the fact that I would do everything I could to have a good game and do everything. And then we just kept losing and losing and losing and losing. And I was like, you know what, maybe I'll get rid of this and, and I'll stick to tennis where if I, if I play bad, I deserve to lose. But if I play well, hopefully I actually win. Um, but I still loved baseball. I actually went back my senior year in high school just for fun and played, uh, played with some of my buddies and uh, my coach wouldn't let me pitch anymore. I, would, I was, I was the reliever. I was only allowed to pitch one inning at a time because uh, he didn't want to hurt my arm. But I, uh, I loved, I loved playing baseball. And I thought about if what would have happened if I had put my focus on that. And I think I would have been right smack dab in the middle of that steroid era. So I don't think I would have had a chance. So maybe it was, <laughs> maybe it was a good thing because I wouldn't have been doing that. And I, I don't think they had a lot of room for a, you know, a guy that can could run, but but couldn't hit a lot of home runs because I don't think I ever would have been one of those those beefier guys that's hitting 40 home runs in a year. So um, I don't know. I don't know how it would have gone because I think I would have come up right in that era and I would have had a I would have had an issue with that. I think you would have probably fit into sort of like a Derek Jeter type of player. And I mean, you and Derek are actually pretty good friends. Um, yeah, spend a bit of I mean, time around I, each other I like in Tampa. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like to think of myself as one of the all-time greats, as I probably would have been similar to Derek Jeter as, you know, first ballot Hall of Famer, almost, was he a unanimous Hall of Famer? So, um, yeah, that's probably about me. We'll, we'll yeah. say that, we'll say that would, well, that would have been me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure next time you see him, you can tell him that I said that, you know, that's yeah, what he would have been Renee in thinks I, I basically would have had the, the same career as, as him. <laughs> now, I'm always uh, also interested in, like, I wasn't going to talk to you about this, but, you know, just the fact that your parents did meet on tennis court and the fact that your dad was black, your mom is English. Yeah. How yeah. did she end up in the States? And like, how was that for them? Like in the period of time being in a biracial relationship and then raising you two boys, yeah. have you had discussions with your parents about that period of time? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So my mom, she came over to the States because her father died um, in world war one um to not to age her but she's not young um and um, but you just did she, yeah but but she came over um because they really didn't have much of a way to, to earn a living um and she was about 17 her older sister met uh, an american and married him and my grandmother and my mom basically just followed her um she was living in jefferson city missouri which my mom uh, said was quite a culture shock coming from a small town in England. And uh, 
she lived there and she, she met a man, she met her first husband and that brought her to New York. And, um, then she had two kids with him and that was when she was very, very young and, um, moved on from that relationship. And then when she was, uh, then she met my dad, like I said, on the tennis courts there in New York. And, um, it was definitely difficult. It was definitely a time where it was not really accepted and they, uh, talk about a lot of times they, they told me about times where they were definitely, um, seen as um outcasts or you know somewhat ostracized and not fitting in and um luckily for my mom her whole family definitely open uh with open arms welcomed my dad and um they didn't see anything being a big deal mainly because he treated my mom so well and her first husband really did not he was white uh the first husband and my dad that's and i think that's now being a parent that's all i want for my kids is someone that's going to treat them well um, and my dad treated my mom well. And so my, my grandmother, uh, appreciated that, loved him, uh, welcomed him with open arms. And so that was the big thing that there was the acceptance there. Um, but as far as the rest of society was concerned, it was difficult. And even, um, you know, we play a sport that's, especially when I was growing up and when you were growing up was pretty, uh, pretty predominantly white and, um, to go to little junior tournaments and stuff. I was, in the minority by, by quite a lot and, um, standing out in, uh, in different ways. And my mom, um, was definitely protective of that and, um, made sure that I still got a fair, a fair shake no matter what. And there were times early on where it didn't seem like I was getting one and she stood up, um, and she made sure to, uh, to stand up to people that didn't, she didn't think were giving me uh, fair treatment. And uh, I'm very thankful to her for that. And it took some, it took some learning because I didn't want to feel like I was, when you're a kid, you don't feel out of place until someone points it out. And then, um, then when you start realizing it, um, it, it was, it was something I became more and more aware of. And, uh, my mom tried to make it as normal as possible. And what was your dad's input in, into that? Because, um, obviously a very different upbringing for your dad, as opposed to your mom. So how was, yeah. how was your dad's input in that? Or was he a little bit more sent backish and let your mom sort of take that role? No, I actually, I mentioned my mom because I, I guess probably in my head, it's almost a given. My dad was outspoken about it. My dad was, uh, <laughs> was not taking anything from anyone. My dad, I mean, my agent um, said that he was scared. My dad wasn't a, a huge man, but he had a very deep voice, a commanding sort of figure. And um, my agent says he was scared of my dad from like the first time because, you know, he's nice as can be, nice as can be. And then he pulled him aside and my agent is much bigger than my dad. And he just said, you don't ever talk to my son without going through me first. It was when I was still, I was going to college and he's like, he's like, he's going to college to get an education. I don't want you putting any, any ideas in his head. You talk to me. And Carlos, my agent came to me and said, you know, years later, he told me, he's like, your dad scared me so much. He's like, I was so scared. Every time I called you, I had to call your dad first. I'm like, believe me, I know I was scared of my dad my entire childhood. <laughs> I know that feeling. So my dad, yeah, I, like I said, I, I almost think of it as a given that he was outspoken about it and he wouldn't let anyone, um, you know, treat me unfairly or do anything that was, that was in any way that he felt was wrong in any way. And he was, he was great about educating me and giving me as many books as I could, as, as he could about, um, you know, African American, by African American authors or, or about the, you know, the culture in general. So he was, um, he was someone that was definitely outspoken, but it, it just, it seemed like it was different because people maybe thought they had a, I don't know, a safe person to talk to or to treat uh, unfairly because my mom was, you know, like I said, she's kind of, she's not that big. She's kind of, um, I don't know, not, uh, not as, 
not as much as you you go go home to and you go yeah that's my mom she's so sweet yeah you know yeah and she she seems so sweet and so they almost felt like they could you know be we would be pushovers and my mom um in some ways she she may have been because she was so nice in general but when it came to something that was about her kids she was definitely not gonna be a pushover Uh, i'd like to hear all of that so yeah i mean you mentioned that you your dad was and I'm sure your mom were really adamant that you went to college. You go, so, you know, you play through juniors, you're obviously recruited quite heavily, but I guess why Harvard? Because it's not really known as a tennis school, right? Yeah. Um, so why, I mean, I'm, I can't even believe those words are coming out of my mouth. Why Harvard? But you know, as, a, as a person who wants to be a professional tennis player, were you thinking about being a professional at that point? Do you think you were good enough? And, and yeah, why Yes, I went through through kind of ups and downs in my junior career because when you're 11, 12, 13 years old, you you don't, I don't think for me, at least I didn't have a sense of reality. I I thought, okay, I'm going to be a pro tennis player. This is going to be great. I mean, but at that point, I was still thinking I was maybe going to be a pro tennis player and a pro baseball player. And I was seeing Deion Sanders and that's possible. And so I thought all of that, then reality kicks in and I'm 14, 15, 16 years old and I'm tiny. Uh, so I Wait, was losing. reality uh, kicked in at 14 and 15? <laughs> well, reality, to <laughs> some degree, <laughs> to some degree, to the reality of maybe I'm not going to be a pro tennis player because I was getting beat up in junior, in New England tournaments and national tournaments. I was getting crushed. So um, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to do my best and see how good I can be as maybe a college player. And hopefully I can do that. And then I kept just working as hard as I could. That was the goal. Um, just work as hard as I can and see, see where it takes me. I finally kind of shot up and grew around 16, like 17 years old and went from being kind of a guy that barely makes nationals to being one of the best players in the country. Um, and it ha- that happened so fast that I didn't know how to react. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what, I didn't realize what had changed from being um, a, an okay player to being someone that was getting agents talking, getting every college interested, um, getting uh, people at the USTA talking about me, me turning pro. And I really didn't recognize any of that. And I went to college still with the thought that I was going to be playing three or four on my college team because my brother, three years older than me, to me, I mean, I'm a, a younger brother with a, a brother that's bigger, stronger, faster, smarter. If you ask him better looking, you know, than me and every, you know, better than everything. So I looked up to him and I thought he was so much better that when I got to school, there's no chance I was anywhere close to him. And before I knew it, it happened that I was, you know, in talks of playing number one. And we never actually got to play off in a challenge match, but we kind of platooned at one and two. And um, so I, I just, I thought about it and I was debating between Harvard and North Carolina. And those are my two choices. And um, I was lucky enough to have Thomas, my brother already at Harvard to know that, hey, I can get the training I want with him, um, with the rest of the team. The guys are good. You know, the guys, the team is good enough that I can get the training I want. And I just just have to be uh, comfortable with the fact that I could also manage the academic and the tennis. And I had a, a perfect example of my brother being able to do it. And then I went there, I had a great time and loved it. And um, yeah, I don't look back at that as a bad decision by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So after a year, you're like, all right, I think I'm, I'm good enough to, to head out there. But sort of, I mean, do you, have you had, how many conversations have you had with people where they've actually said, what, when should we make the decision to go pro or should we go to college? And how many times have you told people go to college, like take that route, particularly yeah. now with tennis being, 
not a sprint. It's literally yeah. players playing into their thirties. And yeah. what do you tell someone? What, what advice would you give to parents out there? I would give the same. I mean, I still feel like even early on in my career, before we were seeing these careers of, of guys playing until their late thirties and women playing until their late thirties, I think I would always tell people if it's not painfully obvious, if you're not Andy Roddick winning challengers, getting to finals or winning tour events at 18 years old, if you're not Sam Query, who was winning back-to-back challengers when, I mean, I, I remember hitting with Sam Query right before he was making the decision. And I even was like, you know, I'm not sure. And then he won two challenges in a row. I'm like, okay, if you can have that kind of success on tour, that's fine. Then it's time to turn pro. If you're not doing that, there, I don't see any downside to playing at least a year of college because if you can prove to yourself and prove to the rest of the tennis world that you're good enough to dominate college tennis um, and be a top two, three player in the, in the country, and maybe you're not getting pushed every single match, okay, now it's time to turn pro. Then you've proven that, you've, you've exhausted every other option, and you've gotten a year of free training where you're hitting with guys that are hopefully going to be able to, to show you something. And for me, I also think it helps you grow up a little. It's almost like a little bit of a bridge um, mentally and in your, in your maturity level because you're going to be held responsible for your whole team. You're going you're gonna to have to, you know, when you have those losses, it, it hurts because you, let, you, may, you feel like you let your team down. And when you win, you feel like you're doing something as part of a team. I love that aspect. But you've gone from being under your parents' care to now you're, you're doing some of the stuff on your own. You still have to be accountable for being in class. You still have to be accountable for being at practice on time. But they're scheduled as opposed to when you're on tour. Hey, if you don't want to show up for practice, you don't have to show up for practice. That's all. Yeah. The only thing it's going to cost you is in your bank account when, you, when you're losing matches because you're not practicing enough and you're not hitting the gym enough. So you don't have those things scheduled. So this is a bit of a, a, bit of a um, bridge to that uh, accountability. And so I loved uh, college and that's without even talking about the social aspect, how much I loved my friends that I got to meet there, the academics, how much I learned while I was at school um, and the connections I made the, the whole time I was there. So I, I think there's no real downside um, because you always have the opportunity to turn pro right after that. And it's so rare nowadays, um, especially on the men's side to have a guy come out and be lighting it up at 18 years yeah. old, 19 years old. It takes a little more time physically develop. When I got to college, I was 155 pounds. When I left two years later, I was 175. Um, and that makes a big difference. I mean, if I was playing on tour at 155 pounds, my, my body would have broken down so fast. I wouldn't have been able to go five weeks in a row on the road at 155 pounds. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that people don't realize also is that you get not only getting pre scheduled practice, which is really difficult to do if you don't have an academy or don't have things around you. Plus you're also in a fitness, you're in the fitness room, you're in the gym, you're in physios, you get all yeah. the treatment you would get if you're on tour, except you got to go to school. Yeah. Um, I want to also, you know, you're in a period of time, obviously, where it was like Andy, you mentioned Andy Roddick, yeah. um, you know, obviously he had this like phenomenal early part of his career, which I'm sure to you guys was like, oh, this is great. Like maybe we can do this. How much yeah. is it important? And then obviously Marty. And so you and Marty were like a little bit like, trying to climb the ladder together a little bit underneath Andy, but how important yeah. is it for you? Do you think to have like peers? Because I always say success breeds success. So you guys sort of pushed each other. Obviously Andy had a phenomenal career with what yeah. he did, but how important was that for you? Yeah, I think it was great that we all had each other and we did it in a different way. And it's another example of when you don't realize what maybe you're supposed to do, you do it your own way and it, and it makes uh it makes sense. And the way we did it was we were all friends. 
It was Andy, Marty, myself, Robbie Ginepri, Taylor Dent, the Bryan brothers. And we were all coming up around the same time. And um, when one of us had success, yeah, when Andy had success, we were all happy for him, proud of him. And it showed us, hey, we can do this too. We can push harder. And obviously, you know, there's differences in physical abilities. There's difference in opportunities and, um, and skill sets. And Andy obviously out, outclassed all of us when it comes to his, his record. But we pushed each other in practice. I mean, there were times where Andy couldn't take that I was going to do another two-on-one or I was going to do another running drill. And he, I'm going to get out there and do it too. Some of, some of my best practices and best practice weeks were those Davis Cup weeks where we were pushing each other. Andy showed me a new drill that he was just doing and he was working, you know, it was five minutes of this. Okay. I'm going to bust my butt and I'm going to do it just the same as Andy. He's going to do the same thing that I'm doing. And we were, you know, we were beating each other. I mean, we, Andy and I had some of the most epic practices where we don't, we barely sit down. I mean, you, you play practice with a lot of other guys, you sit down, you have your water, it takes two, three minutes. Andy and I, just as like when we played our matches too, it's you sit down, you take a sip and you go. And we would kept playing and playing and working each other out and, and I love that because the other thing that we did was that when every time we played, whether it be me against him or me against Marty, it was whoever won takes the guy out to takes the guy that yeah. loses out to dinner next night or whatever. And because we beat each other up and there was no holding back when it's on the court. Of oh, course, we're, I, we don't beat each other bad. I was party and, to a few practice sessions, definitely between you and Marty at Saddlebrook. And yeah, I want I want to know between the two of them and you, who was the best trash talker? Because I got to tell you, I heard the stuff, the shit that was said between you guys. So I want to know, yeah. in your opinion, who the best trash trash talker was. Um, I gotta say Marty. Marty's the best trash talker. He he's funny. He he he's 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 under. Actually, both those guys I would say are underrated at how funny they are. Um, Andy, um, yeah, Andy's good at it, but I think Marty. Marty's just really witty and he gets, he'll, he'll get, he'll get his digs in and he'll deflect the ones coming at him pretty well. He's uh he's good at it, but they, uh, but yeah, we had some fun practicing and um, yeah, the, the thing was we did it as, as friends and we always, I mean, if I lost in a tournament, I want Andy or Marty to win it. If, if Marty lost, he'd be the first one to say, Hey, great job. If I win it or same to, to Andy and we, we were cheering for each other. And then as we got older, we learned that the, the generations before us, they didn't do it that way. They, they sort of breeded success by the fact that they had almost a hatred of each other. Yeah. They've all come together now post careers and everything, but during their careers, they genuinely didn't like the other one and didn't want them to win. We, yeah. we did it in a, in a very friendly manner. And I mean, I think that started with Davis cup. Andy and I both started on the Davis cup team in 2001 and, um, and doing that together, we felt like that, that was a journey we wanted to be on and we were going to, we were going to hopefully bring the cup home. And we did, um it took us a while but it was something that was so much fun uh to be a part of that and we did it because we were we were friends and yeah that was that was definitely what pushed the, uh, what pushed us was you know Andy wanted to beat up on me I wanted to beat up on him we we both wanted to beat up on Marty and Marty wanted to beat up on us and that's just the way it, that's the way it was but we also were we're so happy when the other ones were succeeding yeah i i think that that's an important part of uh, growing a generation is that you push each other, but you support each other as well. Or, or yeah. you know, you have the Pete Sampras, the Jim Couriers, the Andre, the, where they are totally all separated from yeah. each other, but, but they pushed each other because they wanted to be the best. And hey, listen, that was an unbelievable generation. Um, yeah. So, and so what is it with American tennis? Um, what, if you, you know, if you had to be sort of like a czar, 
what would you try and express to the younger generation of American place, particularly the, the men? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, I don't want to have to remind you that actually we're doing great in American tennis on one side. The women's side is doing amazing. So I, I don't have any uh, I don't have any advice for them, but keep doing what they're doing. It's incredible and exciting for the young ones that are coming up, too, is even more exciting. So um, so that side, I don't, I don't have to speak on that too much about what I would do to, to advise them. But on the men's side, yeah, I think this group right now is um, I'm hoping is similar with the fact that they're going to push each other um, out of friendship. I know Taylor, Riley, um, Tommy, Paul, Francis, those guys are all close. They're yeah. all good buddies. Um, and you see talent, but I think the thing that's, that's maybe um, difficult is sort of the, the generations coming up now. There's almost that instant gratification um, generation where they expect things quickly. And in tennis now, it seems like it's taking a little bit longer to mature and longer to get to, a, a, um, to where you need to be. There's a few outliers, of course. I mean, Tsitsipas at such a young age doing so well. Um, Medvedev is doing very well at a young age, but it's taking a little bit longer. And I think these Americans can do well, but it's just taking, it's going to take some bumps. Um, you know, Francis had a breakout Australian open and then had a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a, a letdown, oh, if you want to yeah. say sophomore slump, whatever you want to call it. Riley Opelka, I think is someone that's going to have a long career. If he stays healthy, it's just a matter of managing his body, managing his time, managing his practices and um, figuring out a way to, to get a few more breaks. I mean, his serve is going to be unstoppable for hopefully for his sake, 10 to 15 years on tour. Um, and then just finding a way to get enough breaks to put fear into every single player he plays. It can be another John Isner that nobody really wanted to play. Um, so, so I think these guys a lot of take a little time. Yeah, take it completely out of rhythm. And it's just going to be, so it's just going to take a little time for them to figure out their games. I think Taylor Fritz, um, is a guy that was actually probably he was probably the most mature tennis wise um, coming in because he's got sort of a tennis family tennis pedigree and he was really good and still is really good with the intangibles um, for him he's just got to get his movement a little better uh, make sure he's in great shape and it seems like he's the, the type that's going to work to make sure those things happen Tommy Paul I didn't know as much about but he's got tremendous talent the, the little I have watched him play and he's got some talent. So that then it's just a matter of harnessing that. And I think he had some some growing pains in terms of growing up um, and maturing. And it seems like all the guys are are helping him with that. I think that's where the success breeding success, knowing that those other guys can do it and seeing his level of talent. And when he sees those other guys succeeding, that he knows maybe he's got as much or more talent than them. Well, hey, that's the kick in the butt that you might need to say, all right, that's enough of, you know, the extracurriculars and it's time to focus on the court and be ready for this. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, social media and, you know, the money now in tennis, it's sort of changed some people, the ones, you know, I think you're going to get people that are, have the desire and the passion to be, want to be great. They, they, that, that will never change with money, but it's yeah. some, of, some of the guys and some of the girls, they just, you know, they're happy sort of making a good living and not putting themselves yeah. on the line. So hopefully one of those guys or, or a couple of them will step up and say, yeah, yeah I really want this. Because as you said, tennis is not, or I, as I said, tennis isn't a sprint anymore. You have a long career ahead of you. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think you're right. I was just going to say uh, another retired player I was talking to talked about um, some of these guys that are content not the American guys who was talking about a, a different, uh, a different player, but content being 30 in the world because he made a million and a half, $2 million that year. 
Um, so he's totally fine and doesn't need to push any further. And I think that is unfortunately the case with the fact that the money has gone up exponentially, um, which is great for the game. I'm never, never upset that athletes get money. I'm always happy that they're getting paid. And I think that the difference, like you said, is that'll never change the greats because the greats aren't pushed by money. Novak, Rafa, Roger, Annie Murray, Serena, Venus, they're not pushed by having to make the having to make money in each each event or what they're doing they're pushed by history they're pushed by themselves they're pushing themselves to be the greatest they can be and that's where it is and there is definitely prior. a separation i think also one thing to state about that that was prior they had that instinct and that want prior to being really wealthy because all of those yes. players that you mentioned are all really wealthy now and don't need to win yes. another match yes. to pay their bills yeah. but they were like that prior to winning you know, and having 50, exactly. 100 million, that, 200 million in the bank. Yeah, they have that mindset. And I think that's something that's very difficult to be taught. It's not something that, you know, it's just something that's inside a lot of players. And so that's inside the greats, I think. So the greats will never change, no matter how much money is in the sport or taken out of the sport, the greats will never change. It's those ones that are in the middle that um, you can possibly see complacency. And to me, that's a shame if you see complacency, because you know, they're not, they're not going to ever get to that top level. And yeah. um yeah, but I guess, you know, it's, it's easy to, it's easy to kind of um, sort of uh, suss them out as to who's, who's, who's not going to be one of the greats. If you see that, if you see that mindset from early on of like being just totally content, it's like, okay, well, you know, if you're a coach, you could, I mean, I would think not that I'm, I'm looking to get into coaching or anything, but if I was, if I was a coach and I saw that, I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to waste my time. You know, you can, yeah. you can take any coach in the world and they can keep you at 50 in the world, 80 in the world and make a good living. Um, even though you, because you have the talent to be top 10 in the world, but you're content being 50, that would just be too frustrating as a coach to deal with. Yeah. I, I could see you being a coach um, and getting <laughs> frustrated with that because you would run, you, you'd still be running for the ball probably more than they would. Um, uh, absolutely. Go back to your career a little bit. Um, you know, is there one match that if you could, I kind of sort of already know the answer to this, but if there was one match you, you, you could go back to because you had such a great career, but whoa, boy, did you have some ups and downs physically. But yeah. if there's one match, at least you go back to that you could redo, which one would it be? Yeah. I mean, I think the the easiest answer is that Agassi match in the, the quarters of the open. I mean, I, I don't think I even need to replay the whole match. I need to replay two points from six all in the, in the tiebreaker. We were, you know, fifth set tiebreaker quarterfinals of the U S open and, the winner played uh, Robbie Ginepri and, um, you know, I was playing at that point. I had just come back from a serious injury and illness. And so I was a wild card into the event actually, and making it to the quarters beat Rafa. Um, so for me, it was, it was a dream run sort of, and then playing Andre, uh, you know, another fan favorite and um, one of the legends of the game. So it was, it was such a great atmosphere um and then it just came down to him making two unbelievable shots to finish off the match and uh me getting a little tight i served for the match at uh at five four in the fifth um he i mean one of the best returners ever and my serve wasn't exactly my my huge weapon so i didn't didn't just close it out with my, a nice easy game he he came back and would have loved to have won that one but you know looking back on it i, I think about that a lot um, you know, when I talk to buddies that talk, you know, talk to me about it or tennis players that tell me about it. And I think so I, I, it gets brought up a lot, but I really don't have regrets about the way I played. I really did my best. Um, I think about the tiebreaker and how many winners were hitting that tiebreaker and how few errors were hit. It was just us playing pretty darn good tennis. And, um, 
yeah, I wish I could have closed it out and had an opportunity to play my good friend, Robbie Ginepri in the semis for one of us to go, um, basically, uh, on that walk that, that last mile walk to getting slaughtered by, uh, by Roger when Roger was absolutely dominant in the finals, but, um, it still would have been fun to be a part of that and, and uh, be in a, a grand slam semi or a grand slam final. And, um, you know, Andre deserved it that time though. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Okay, so I'll flip you to one of the times that you had an amazing memory, and that was obviously Davis Cup final when you yeah. won both of your singles matches. Like, yeah. How, yeah. how incredible was that moment to be? Because I know you're a team guy, even though you picked a sport because yeah. you wanted to be an individual and you didn't want to have a loser team. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that's what I got out of this so far. Um, but yeah. like, that was not a loser team that you're on. And no. how amazing was that? moment and what did it mean to you to represent your country as you did it obviously at the olympics too we won't bring that match up um, yeah <laughs> but, but like how 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 great was that week you know that week was um that was amazing uh, we had a huge team normally you take just the team and maybe one practice partner two practice partners and we had so many of the guys in because it was the finals marty was there donald young john isner um uh, we had a great group of guys and um so we had a lot of fun, but then everything we had done to get up to that point was so solidified by the fact that Andy won a match um, against Tursunov, who had beaten him the year before in the in the semis on clay in Russia, and then he beats him. And then I play Eugeny, who had beaten me as well um, on the clay. And so I got, and it was a four set match, three tiebreakers. Um, and so it was, it definitely could have gone either way, but to come through that way and it's just to make it so that you know, you never know what can happen. So if I were to lose that one, the Bryans were so often just a lock, but if they're up, if we're up two one, you know, we're, we're relying on Andy again. And Andy had been such a great closer. He was unbelievable for us when he was in the position to, uh, to close out the tie, but we don't want, I didn't want to put him in that position. So then to have Andy win me win, and then the Bryans close it out. Now this was a team effort. The whole, all, yeah. all four of us uh, participated, all four of us got, uh, got the job done like we needed to. And um, then to celebrate that Saturday night, tons of my friends had flown in from the East coast. My mom was there. Uh, my brother was there. We had uh, two of my brothers were there. So we had, I mean, we had an unbelievable time and I was, uh, I was really proud of that. And so representing my country was always an absolute honor. Uh, I, I um, people, Oftentimes, anytime I'm doing something now, ask if I ever got nervous playing tennis. And truthfully, I never got nervous um, in any individual match I ever played. U.S. Open, no nerves. Uh, wow. Wimbledon, no nerves. 
but then um, Davis Cup um, and Olympics were the two times I had nerves. The first time I played Davis Cup, I had absolute butterflies in my stomach for the entire first set. Um, I, I didn't know what was going on. And it was just because when they're saying Advantage USA, Game USA, and you look over at the, the, the team on the side, it just – it just had a different, um, a different feel. It, I was also uh, a little, a little crazy with the fact that the first time I played Davis Cup was uh, a match that was postponed because of 9/11. So it was just a couple mm. months later in the states after 9/11. The atmosphere in the crowd was so patriotic, and so it was, um, it was really special to me every time I put on that uniform. Um, I don't save a ton of stuff for my career, but I do still have one, uh, one. one Davis. I still have the Davis Cup uniform. Um, and I still have the Davis Cup. That's the one, the one trophy that absolutely means means so much to me. So I um I always felt special with that. And um yeah, and then yeah. same thing with the Olympics. You know, you're going over there and I only played in one Olympics, but it was uh it was really an honor to to be there and to be around so many other great athletes and to see that there was it wasn't just the tennis community that was excited about it, it was the entire sports community and the support you got from the rowing team, from the cycling team, from the the air rifle team, whatever teams are out there, they're all supportive of you and you're supportive of them. And I felt like that was really special as well. Yeah, it's cool. And I always tell people that um, when it comes to the Olympics, I'm like, go watch those tennis matches and don't tell me that the players don't want to be there as tennis players. And Cause oh, yeah. for me, like playing again, it's the most nervous I've ever been was representing my country. And I did it. I got to do it four times and I got to do it in Sydney and it's the most nervous I've ever been in my whole life. I mean, I literally didn't oh, yeah. shaking until like match point. Um, yeah. I want to shift a little bit like you you spoke about some I spoke a little bit earlier about some tough moments in your life I want to know um was it was it harder like breaking literally breaking your neck running into a net post or almost having your neck broken by somebody outside of a Grand Hyatt in New York because you've had <laughs> two pretty traumatic well you've actually had three because you also had shingles once right yeah yeah I remember going to a party and like walking in Jill Schmoller, our buddy, and like your whole face is like completely numb. I mean, I don't know how yeah. much people know about you getting shingles, but that was a terrible time of your life. Yeah. I mean, and you broke yeah. your neck, like go through those period of times where you broke your neck and shingles, and then we'll get to New York. Um, what yeah. happened there? So out of, out of those three, by far the most painful is shingles. Uh, I mean, if people are out there and don't know much about shingles, don't get it. Do everything you can. I know there's a vaccine for it now, so try to do that. But it's it is the most painful thing I've I've probably ever experienced in my life. I also happen to get pretty unlucky that I got shingles in my facial nerve. It can hit any nerve in your body, and it's painful anywhere. But when it's in your facial nerve, it's really bad because it messes up with your your inner ear, so it messes up with your balance, your vision, your taste, and everything. So that was just bad luck, and it was it was all brought on by stress. It was right after I'd broken my neck, and then my father passed away. And I was just, um, I, I wasn't sleeping. I mean, for probably a week mm -hmm. straight and just not, not myself, um, missing my dad. And so my, my body just reacted that way. So that was extremely painful. That was, there was nothing else like that pain. Um, mm -hmm. but then, um, the, the break of my neck and all that, that, that led me, it's, it's funny that, that you know, those are kind of grouped together is it, because they, they led me to my two books that I wrote. One of them, um, one, what happened to me with the shingles and breaking my neck and my father passing away, um, that kind of caused me to, to write a book about my comeback and getting back on tour. And um, people asked me, are you ever going to write another book? I said, no, I, I, if, if this is what I have to go through to write a book, I don't ever want to write another book again in my life. I, I'd rather, I'd much rather be living anonymously and not think about it and, and not have to go through this. And then 
what happened to me in New York City, getting thrown on the ground, tackled by a police officer, that sort of, it didn't directly force me to write another book, but it, it got me thinking about activists and, and sports and how much sports plays a role in society, contrary to what some idiot talking heads want to say about shut up and dribble or, or stay stick in your lane. Or, yeah, stick to sports. You know, it, it's had so much of an effect on society at large that I wanted to, to write a book about uh, some of the athletes that have that have made a difference and have um, stood up for what they believed in. And um, and so that was why um, why I wrote a, another book was because of what happened to me in New York. And it was um, it, it was Ways just it was just let's, let's promote yeah, it a little Ways bit. Of grace, which, which, by the way, I titled it before I wrote it. Um, and that's uh, talking about pressure. That put so much pressure on me because one of my favorite books of all time is Days of Grace uh, by Arthur Ashe. So yeah. I, I named it that. And I, that to me told me I better make this good because I don't want to yeah. I don't want to do uh, I don't want to pay homage to, to Arthur Ashe and then and then write a write a crappy book. So I, uh, I did my best to make it a uh, to make him proud or to make uh, Jeannie, his widow, proud of, of taking off on that title. Yeah. Obviously, nobody knows, which I don't know if you if you don't know, you've been living under a, a rock. But what happened to you, obviously, in New York was, you know, mistaken identity taken down very violently. And, you know, mm -hmm. that ensued you suing the NYPD. And that's the one thing I didn't do is I didn't sue is I, I waived my right to sue um, for them to create a fellowship. So there's a James Blake Fellowship now in New York that has a fellow on staff to help with those kind of cases, to help with um, police brutality cases, because they're so underserved. Uh, the lawyers there are completely overworked and none of them are, are able to give the time really necessary for each one of those cases to be investigated. Um, and that was what I was always sort of fighting for was the accountability of police officers that um, can get away with this on a daily basis. And knowing what I knew, I initially wasn't going to speak up about it, but then realizing that I actually have a voice with the fact that the next morning I was on GMA and I was able to be in the newspapers every day um, talking about it. Most people, if I was James Blake, the plumber going off to work, um, that wouldn't have ever happened. Nothing would have happened. No, there would have been zero ramifications. They probably wouldn't have even put in a report um, because before they knew who I was, they, they weren't going to do that. They were slapping you on the back saying, sorry, buddy. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. And move yep. on and, and do that again. And they didn't care. There's, I mean, yep. zero ramifications. So that's where I wanted to, to speak up and, and make sure they're held accountable. And then that's when I ran into the fact that the, the system is just so broken uh broken and just out of line it's it's completely out of whack um because it's the police um policing themselves and they're the the punishment does not fit the crime uh to do what he did on camera his fifth time doing something like that or worse and him only lose five vacation days for that it's not um it, it's it the punishment doesn't fit the crime it, you think incredible. about any other profession and if they were to you know grossly mishandle a situation the way that that was done um, and not be apologetic about it and that be the fifth time you're doing it. I mean, what other job do you get to keep your job? I mean, I, I don't get how, what they're looking for uh, or what it would take to actually fire a police officer um, with the unions being so strong. And that's where I did everything I could to speak up about that. And, you know, I was screaming about that for five years before um, sadly what happened to George Floyd happened and not being on the public, you know, on the public's radar for everyone to see as nonchalant as those police officers were doing that as they were uh, squeezing the life out of a human being and doing that without much care, without anyone batting an eyelash. And then um, for it to be- yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. Like how, when that happened, how 
much did that just trigger what you went through, but knowing that this man died yeah. and to watch was, what happened was, to him. It, and and this similar thing happened to you. The guy pinned you down, yeah. had his knee on your back, like the whole thing. Like yeah. how much did that trigger in you? It was so crazy. I didn't sleep that night. And so what happened was I ended up, I was up, I was up that night, um, two, three in the morning. And I just, uh, I started writing and I wrote an op-ed, um, uh, went into USA Today, I believe. And, um, it was just talking about, cause I went through kind of a roller coaster of emotions because I was, I was so saddened. Of course, you know, you think about what the, the fact that that happens, you think about the fact that that happens far too often. I mean, one time is too often, but how many more times it's happened in the past five years and past 20 years, 30 years. Um, but so you think about that. And my thought initially was like, this is so tragic. And what I thought was going to happen was the world was going to be outraged for one day, maybe two days. And then a new cycle would happen. You know, some, someone would say something outrageous, inflammatory, something else inflammatory would happen. And the new cycle would completely spin and shift and there'd be something different going on. And that was what I was starting to write about was how saddened I was that this is now going to be just another name. This is going to be another Terrence Crutcher, Alton Sterling, uh, Mike Brown, another another uh, case of, you know, this shouldn't have happened, but we're going to move on and nothing is going to be done about it. And then I was so encouraged by the fact that people weren't going to let, people are not going to let this die. People are not going to let this die with George Floyd. He was going to have more of an influence um, because this was so wrong. This was so obviously a case of mishandling of justice. And um, so, and the other thing that was really encouraging to me was that this wasn't just the black community now that was speaking up. This was, if, if you looked at some, I mean, I'm in, uh, I'm in Solana Beach, California right now. And I went down, there's protests just down the road here and it was probably 70% white. And I heard about so many other protests in LA where it's the same thing, where it was completely mixed. It wasn't just the black community. And that made me so encouraged because that's what was missing for so long. I mean, Colin Kaepernick was kneeling about this four or five years ago. Um, people were talking about this in the black and brown community since I was a kid, but now the majority was speaking up and was saying, okay, this is wrong. We're realizing this. I, w I went on a ton of zoom calls and conference calls and talking to high school kids and talking to college kids and what can we do and what, how can we change this behavior? And that was to me so encouraging. So I was just thinking about how different it's going to be now that the majority is aware of this. And I felt like my case really affected, had that same effect on such a small group on, you know, the Marty fishes on the, the white tennis players that I was around that didn't see me as someone that this could happen to and then it happens to me and it's almost like your eyes are now open like wait a minute you guys really do think about this all the time this isn't just like a punchline in a movie where you're getting followed around in a store or where they're thinking they're going to pull you over because you know when i used to have dreads and i'm driving a nice car like you're actually scared of this stuff happening every day and so it was eye-opening to my friends but it wasn't as eye-opening to people because they didn't know me you know no one in my you know, in, in my world or my community was like shocked or, um, or like dismayed when say Alton Sterling got killed because they didn't know him personally. So they think, Oh, you know, he shouldn't have been out at 4am. He shouldn't yeah. have been here in front of this bad area. And there's, there's too much of that victim blaming. Whereas if you watch what happened to George Floyd, he's crying for his mom and he's got a knee on his neck that could so easily be removed and let this man live. And let him face punishment for whatever he did for passing a counterfeit $20 bill. 
okay, he needs to pay a fine. He needs to go to counseling or go to jail for a short amount of time, whatever needs to happen. He doesn't need to be killed. And so I think it it opened so many eyes and got the majority thinking and speaking about it, that it was really encouraging. Of course, the, some of the, the protests were, you know, taken over by looters and rioters and that was horrible and unfortunate. And it, it didn't, um, it didn't convey the real message, but I think the message was still there and, and has continued because I see so many people that are that are thinking differently about the world. So on that note, then with the tennis, how do you feel like tennis has taken the baton of trying to have racial justice and equality? And how do you feel about it, particularly after what happened at the US Open last year with Naomi? And what do you think yeah. tennis needs to go with this? So I think Naomi did an amazing thing, um, shutting down the entire sport for a day. Um, you know, that's unheard of. Uh, and I think it was sort of on the backs of the Milwaukee Bucks sitting out their playoff game that really opened the eyes of the NBA. The NBA, of course, being over 70% uh, black, it's, it's a little more expected, um, but it's still impressive that they did that. And then Naomi the next day to say, I'm not playing my semifinals and is ready to forfeit it. Um, was absolutely incredible. The ATP, WTA, and ITF immediately getting on board. You know how impossible it is to get those three to actually com- uh, agree on anything, and all three of them agreeing right away to be to to take the day off um, was was truly a, a sense of hey, she's putting this to to you guys to make, to force you to make this decision. And I'm glad they made the right decision. And she's continuing to use her voice. I mean, we've seen her grow up in front of our eyes. Really impressive that she's taking a stand. And I think there's a difference in tennis with how international it is, with how much this can go into where there are other there are other countries where where racism is, is somewhat in different forms. I mean, you know, in Australia, a lot of it has been directed towards aboriginals um, in Europe. You know, there's the, the history of Germany and of the Holocaust and so many things going on in in Europe and Africa. Obviously, we've seen so much with the you know South Africa and with the apartheid. And, you know, there's so many different dynamics where racism has um, has played a role. And if there is a if there is one sport, I mean, maybe soccer is also as as international. But I, for me, I, I'm biased. Obviously, I grew up playing tennis and loved it. I, I think it's the most international sport there is. And it's also one of the most, uh, the biggest meritocracies where you do well, you get further, you, you win your match, you go, you advance, you get paid more money, you get more points, you get ranked higher. Um, and so I, I've always loved that about it. And I think this can be, hopefully the players can see that it doesn't matter what you look like in the locker room, what you act like you go out and you play the game. And that's where you should get your, uh, your merit from is how you play the game. I hope Naomi will continue to speak up. I hope there can be something done um, about the systemic racism in our country. Um, in the sport, I, I felt, um, I've actually felt pretty good about the way the sport was going in the right direction. I don't think it's just like anything. I don't think it's all the way there. I mean, I definitely think there's, there's treatment that, um, you know, especially in certain countries where you, you don't want to be, where uh, Serena, Venus, myself, maybe didn't get the same kind of treatment, but um, I do think it's getting much better. And Naomi's speaking about that. And I, I love the fact that she's, she's speaking up. I, I don't know uh, a specific rule or, or, or change that, that needs to happen immediately, but um, I, I love the fact that we're doing something as an international sport. 
Yeah, I actually love the fact that you know, Naomi is becoming one of the highest paid, if not, I think, I believe she's the highest paid athlete, female athlete in the world. Yeah. And I think the fact that she has done this, as we said, spoken up about um, and gotten behind this movement, and yet sponsorship is coming her way, like left and right. I know it's because she's also an unbelievable champion and she's winning and she's young and she's beautiful. And But I think it's amazing that she is taking this stand, but yet is still getting supported by major sponsors that are out there. Yeah. Um, that is super important. And I applaud those um, those companies for getting behind her, even with her taking this stance. I, I, you know, I, I don't have that much more time with you because you've been so great, but um, you are going into a role of being tournament director of Miami. Yeah. So how do you yeah. juggle like your own personal things that you would like to get changed and then having to deal yeah. with tennis players and, and, and television and, 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 I mean, the amount of stuff that tournament directors, I mean, you must feel so badly for someone like Craig Tiley right now who we're yes, doing this just before the Australian Open. And I don't know when it's going to play, but how how different is your thought process now as a tournament director going, oh man, I wish I wasn't such a dick sometimes to these tournament directors. <laughs> I definitely have thought that um, since being a tournament director now, now uh, it's going on four years now. I think it's, it's definitely um, made me realize that I wish I had some of the knowledge that I have now back when I was on tour and maybe I wouldn't have been such a dick. And you were a nice dick, but you were a dick. I mean, everybody, yeah, yeah. Everybody I, was, I, I mean, I was the, I, I, there were times I was a smart ass. So I'll, uh, I'll be honest about that. And I shouldn't have been, but um, it's, it's amazing to see the different, the, the amount of work that goes into it. And so many times I, I want to like pull one of the players in that's doing what I'm sure I would have done too. And be like, look, this is how we got to this decision. This is all that we went through. And this is the, the difference is when you're a player, you think players are the only thing that matters to a, to an event. And when you're a tournament director, you realize that the sponsors matter, the media matters, the fans matter, the uh, TV viewership matters, the players matter, the volunteers matter. Um, there's so much else that, that goes into every decision that you want to keep everyone happy, but you, you have to do your best to, to be fair and balanced. And it's not just fair to the players, it's fair to everyone else that's a part of the event. And that's what I think a lot of players don't understand and they don't see that. I'm trying my best to politely let a lot of the ones, especially the ones I'm close to and that, that ask me about, hey, what are we going to do? When's the schedule coming out? What's this going on? Asking a bunch of different little things. Can I get this? Can I get that? Um, and I try to make sure they're aware that, hey, you know, I, I can't give you that answer because it's not fair to everyone else. Or I can't I can't tell you that because we haven't decided. We still have a lot to talk about. Um, but uh, it's been fun. It, it really has. But it's it's been a lot of a lot more work than I really expected it to be. Um, but it's fun. I always wanted to be, you know, you learn a lot when you're on tour. And if there's a way to, to still do something with that when you can't play the way you used to play, um, then it's fun to still be involved in the sport. I mean, the sport has given me so much. I've loved it from very, very early on. Um, so this is another way for me to continue being involved. And um, do you start got, do you start every conversation with a player that comes with, you know, a request or something? Listen, <laughs> I, I ask the same thing. So I get where you're coming from and then you yeah. lay it on them like, but, so but I think that's a good strategy it. for you. I, yeah. I feel you. I did the same thing. And I think, I, I think I get that. I, I, I still, I don't know how much longer I got it. I mean, a few more grays come in this beard and people are going to forget that I ever even played tennis. But right now I think I still get the respect when I go into the locker room. And I'm like, look, Hey, 
you can't have this practice court time or you can't have this match time because so-and-so because of this. And they get that. I understand that because, Hey, look, I tried, I, I am trying to make it easier for the players, but if we absolutely can't put this match on a stadium because TV needs this match on a stadium and I can explain that to them, I try to be completely open with them. Like, look, this is just the way it is. We can't do it this way or we have to do it that way. And I think I still get at least the respect in the locker room of, you know, at least he gets it. He knows yeah, he's you're, been in this you're situation. You're an honest guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that and then I've been in that situation. I've, you know, yeah. I've had plenty of times where I've asked for something. When I was on tour, I asked for something and didn't get it. And, you know, you got to roll with that. All right. One thing, uh, Caitlin, my uh, podcast buddy, who's not on the on this one, as per usual, because she's doing something else. But um, she wanted to know about your dad's clothing line. You named a clothing line yes, after your dad. And she was like, I want to know if he still has any in the closet or any put away that was special. I do. I do have a few of those put away because those were very special to me. And actually, um, Marty mentioned that my brother wore one of those shirts when he was caddying for him this last weekend in, in Orlando. Um, and it was definitely very special to me because, um, Fila, when I was with Fila, uh, for a few years, they asked if I wanted, if I wanted my own line and I was, I mean, surprised by that, but still like, yes, absolutely. I'd love to have my own line. And then they were going over what I wanted to name it. And I absolutely did not want to name it after myself. So I wanted to name it for my dad. And, um, so it ended up being named Thomas Reynolds. So the, the logo is a TR because we tried TB, but every iteration of TB was taken by some lady named Tori Birch. I don't know. I, I guess she's got, she's, she's, she's sold a few bags or something, but um, so everything was taken for TB. So his middle name was Reynolds. So I went with Thomas Reynolds um, for the name of the, uh, that. And I thought the stuff was really cool. Um, it, I mean, it, it was Fila. I wasn't exactly lighting up the court at that time. So unfortunately I didn't get as much exposure as I would have hoped, but every once in a while I would see some people out there wearing it. I remember uh, Kim Kleister's coach at the time would wear it in the box. And I was so appreciative of that. And um, I, I loved doing that. It was really cool. A really cool experience. Another learning experience where you see also how difficult the clothing market is, you know, to yeah. try to start your own line or do something like that. It's, it's not as, it's not as easy as, uh, as the Nikes and Adidas and uh, all the Under Armors, they all make it look. It's uh, it takes a lot to to put those out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, what would you tell your twenty year old self, James? Oh, uh, twenty year old self. Um, maybe don't be quite so hard on yourself. I was pretty tough on myself always about every loss and every everything I felt like I did wrong or, or should have done better. And I've gotten to probably now a stage in my life where I try to take it a little easier on myself and it, it, it hopefully helps me uh, have a little more peace. <laughs> and uh, what's the most important thing you want to get across to your girls? Because I mean, you are surrounded by women, James, surrounded uh, which is, by women. which I'm is, reminded. I mean, for a lot of people might not find that so surprising because you know, you're a good looking <laughs> guy and stuff, but you know, your wife and your kids now you're surrounded by women and how kind of, I don't know, how great is that to also, you're just surrounded by these girls and during the COVID Corona, yeah. their, their home school and the whole thing and your wife Emily's like get out of the house yeah. already like how have, how great is that for you I'm reminded of it all the time that they they joke about that they're they're basically ganging up on me it's the girls you know it's the girls girls will be on one couch and I'm on the other couch they're still, you know no gross daddy with mommy and they, they they remind me plenty but it's uh and then they they're both but they're, they're so sweet they'll say we're just kidding and they'll come right over but they're uh 
they are still mama's girls, but they, um, they're, they're so sweet. And I, you know, I think every athlete, maybe I don't want to speak for everyone, but like, I probably assumed, like, I, I didn't think that far in advance because you're so focused on tennis, but you think about, you're going to have a son and he's going to, is he going to play baseball? Is he going to play tennis? He's going to be out in the backyard throwing a football with you. And then before I know it, I have two daughters and now I can't even picture having a son. I see uh, dads of boys and I just, I, it's, it's foreign to me because I'm now I'm so used to just raising girls and how different it is uh, to raise them. And they're so sweet. And so um, both my girls have, um, I don't know, they, they have unique personalities, but they're, they're both very emotional. And, and so, like I said, they, they can joke with me and mess with me and then be the sweetest thing in the world where they come up to me and want to, you know, they'll, they'll be upset. They melt and then like, you. Hey, what's that? They melt you. Let's face yeah. It. Like, Daddy, will you just, will you just lay with me while I fall asleep? And it's like, absolutely of course i will you know and they're, they're just so sweet um and it's um it's been a ton of fun and my older one is so into sports she uh wants to watch every sport i'm watching she asks a million questions about football about basketball about baseball tennis she's um i mean so i i'm not missing the athlete part of it at all it's just uh coming from her it's awesome she wants to and i'm actually as soon as i'm done with this i'm taking her right to soccer practice and um you know she's in she wants to ride horses she wants to play soccer she wants to play tennis she wants to do everything so i i, I mean i absolutely love it good well I, I i can't see you being a nightmare tennis parent or just a nightmare parent but i can see you because i know you that you're, you're not a perfectionist, but you want someone to do something well. So I hope that you pass yeah. that on to her, but that you're a, the parent that I know you are as a guy and uh, you're a great one, so. Well, thanks Renee, appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for doing this. And that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Ruggieri and the team at ACAST. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.